Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. My guest today is Christine Scruggs, who is a physician of hospital medicine, author, and screenwriter. Dr. Scruggs is currently a hospitalist in the UNC Health System under a virtual care model. She trained at the Medical University of South Carolina and UNC Chapel Hill. She has, a, she has had numerous leadership roles in medicine and medical education and has also blossomed as an author and screenwriter. Today, Dr. Scruggs will let us see some of her insights and how they relate to medicine, creativity, and mortality. Christy, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, you pretty much nailed all the, the background stuff. Um, <clears throat> I'll say since training, I practiced uh, traditional hospital medicine for about seven and a half years. Um, I've also done some outpatient uh, home-based medicine. And as you mentioned, I've uh, branched out into uh, the creative space as well. Um, so that's me. All right. And I guess while we're talking about kind of the different areas of medicine that you've worked in, uh, do you think any of those particular realms, whether it's primary care or inpatient, helped you relate to mortality in a different way? Oh, absolutely. I, I think every role I've had has given me sort of a different perspective. Um, <clears throat> of course, in medical school and residency, you're just trying to survive and um, uh, you know, so that's, that's a, its own beast. Um, but it was certainly as a young person, my first real experience with mortality and death and, um, especially walking people through that. That's just not something that, um, fortunately many, you know, early to mid 20 year old people, um, have experience with. So you do kind of get thrown in. Um, you, I'm sure, Everyone has their different coping mechanisms, but um, I think a Scrubs episode said it best um, when they talked about how, as a, as a physician, you don't have the luxury of of time to to grieve a patient loss like their family and friends do. It's your job, and you have another patient in the next room um, that is re relying on you. Um, so I think that we learn very early on to compartmentalize um, and to frame things in that way um, in, in sort of the bigger picture. Yeah, I think that Scrubs reference is a really valuable piece to bring up because there are certainly patients or encounters where you probably want to take the time to spend time with the family and process that loss, but there's so many other things that are happening that you're responsible for that compartmentalizing is kind of a necessary part of the job. Yeah. Um, and, and you sort of learn which patients need what from you, because, um, you know, some patients you just connect with on a different level and, um, you know, that they, they actually want you there and they want you to be sort of part of the experience and, and others, you know, you know your role and and they have a, a strong family unit and you know and and what they need from you is is the more professional side so that's why medicine is is an art as much as a science i saw in your cv that you had numerous publications related to oncology was that kind of your original plan and 
If so, what changed and did, did mortality have anything to do with that interest? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. It's, it's a much less romantic reason. I just, I wanted to be in practice. Um, I was tired of being a student and being in training and um, I find medical oncology fascinating, but I was really, uh, I was really enjoying inpatient medicine and um, the impact that you can have there in such a short amount of time. And um, so I, I just decided that that was kind of where I belonged at, at the moment. Gotcha. Do you remember what your first experience with death was like outside of medicine? Yeah, I actually do. I've been um, noodling around with this this week um, in preparation for this podcast. Um, when I was in fourth grade, my grandfather died. And um, of course, you're not involved as a, as a child in any of the decisions. I hardly knew um, he was sick. But um, the night that he died is definitely one of my first um, very strong memories that I can remember a lot of details. I can remember how I felt, what, how things sounded. Um, it was a lot of a chaos and distress and a sense of this shouldn't be happening. Why is this happening? Um, I of course was <laughs> you know, terrified. I had no idea what was going on. How um, old were you? I think I was about 10, okay. nine or 10. Um, and it was the middle of the night and there was a 911 call and there was CPR and um, all of those things. But I was hearing it. I, I was not able to see anything. I was in my room, I'm sure being protected from all of the chaos. Uh, but of course, as a child, your imagination probably is worse than the reality. Um, I, looking I mean, back I, on I it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, looking back on it, um, I, I have a lot of thoughts. You know, I, I have reframed it as a young adult. I've reframed it as someone who's trained in medicine, who's seen people die, who's seen people be resuscitated. And my overwhelming sense is um, w my family could have and should have been more prepared. Um, you know, it, it was something that I could tell you know, no one was ready for. Um, it, it was not unexpected from what I understand, mm -hmm. but it was. <laughs> so if I'm understanding this, it sounds like your grandfather was sick. You were not really privy to the details as, as a 10 year old. And yeah. everyone kind of had an understanding that he was sick enough that dying at some point was going to happen, but emotionally, there was not any preparation for that. Correct. Yeah. I know he had cancer. Um, I don't even know what kind of treatments he had had or was a candidate for, but, um, but that, yeah, that was my sense. And I know actually now that we're talking about it, I remember my mom saying that she remembers a distinct moment when she felt like my grandfather saw, um, you know, people on the other side and had this sort of peace come over him. So I know there was, you know, at least a sense at some point this is happening, <laughs> you know, um, whether we like it or not, this is happening. For sure.
and you said that you've reflected and kind of went back to those feelings that you had as a 10-year-old. Can you identify what those feelings were? I mean, mostly it was um, just terror and fear of the unknown and that sense that if the adults in the room are scared, <laughs> how should I feel? Mm. Yeah. To your point about how our um, imaginations are sometimes worse than reality, I don't, I don't know if anything could be much worse at 10 if there's CPR happening in your house to one of your loved ones. That's, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't see it, um, but you're right. Like, that, that would be very hard to watch as a child. Yeah. Do yeah. you remember the, the grief that followed that? Um, I, you know, that moment is what sticks out the most. I know mm -hmm. I was very sad. Obviously, it was my first family member to die, and I was very close with him. Um, you know, everyone in the family was was grieving. He was relatively young um, and very loved by all. So he, you know, definitely left his mark on the family. Um, wow. but but that that moment is is the defining moment for me for for my grandfather passing. Do you think that impacted you to go into medicine at all? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you know, it, it feels like a chicken or the egg thing as far as my feelings about death and how it relates to my career. Um, I honestly feel like I didn't go into medicine because of any, you know, sort of sense of walking people through that difficult time in their life. And, and that was my calling. I think medicine has um, changed me and how I view the world and how I view life and death and, you know, sort of the meaning of it all and, and um, the fact that, you know, all of us will die. Mm -hmm. And what matters is more kind of how we live and even how we die, um, not that we will die. Well said. Have you considered like what a, what's the word? There's a term that, that's been floating around. What have you considered, uh, this is what it is, what a good death looks like to you? Yeah, I mean, um, I wouldn't say I ruminate on it, um, but you can't not think about it uh, when you're in medicine and especially in a field where you do, um, you know, have patients die and are there for it. Um, I certainly want, I want to have accomplished my goals. I'm not ready to die, of course. Um, but I think if, if I was confronted with a terminal illness, I would have a lot of work to do, of course, to get ready. But the, a good death for me would be to be at peace, to have done what I need to do, say what I need to say, um, and then be be surrounded by people I love. And if my kids are so young, for them not to be scared. Speaking of your kids, have they had any experiences with like pets or other family members passing away? And how, how did, if that, if they have, like, how was watching them go through that 
How did that affect you? They have not. (laughs) They have not had a single animal, family member, anyone die. Um, So, yeah, I can imagine how each of them would respond, but we haven't, thankfully, been there yet. Gotcha. That's fortunate. And yeah, yeah. I also not fortunately or unfortunately, it will happen at some point. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're well thought out and hopefully have a good plan to address that with them. I hope so. It's always hard to frame things in a way that kids will understand at the, you know, at the sort of maturity level they are at the moment because they're constantly changing. <laughs> yeah. When your grandfather passed away, was there ever like a family debrief? Like, did your parents show their full emotion or did they try to like keep things under wraps and try to show composure all the time? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think my parents default to protecting. Um, you know, I, I don't recall ever talking about it in great detail. Um, and you know, I, in general, not just with that instance, but I do think there was a sense of there are certain things that kids just don't need to worry about or think about, you know, so I think that was in that category. Um, do you want to tell us about the piece, the dirty secret about CPR in the hospital? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I don't blog anymore, but when I was first getting into writing, I was, um, I was writing, you know, fiction, but I also wanted to wanted to write in sort of lay people's terms about things that I've learned in medicine. And this piece, uh, it's called The Dirty Secret About CPR in the Hospital um, that Doctors Desperately Want You to Know. Um, and I basically talk about, uh, you know, what I've sort of come to know and what everybody really knows who works in the hospital Um, which is there in every death, there comes a point of no return for lack of a better term. Um, Sometimes that point of no return is reached before someone ever even gets critically ill. You just know there's too many things working against them for them to survive, you know, a cardiac arrest. Um, The problem is, what we see on TV is a young, healthy person who gets resuscitated for 45 seconds and comes back to live a full, meaningful life. Um, What we see in the hospital is often a a person who is older, who has multiple medical problems now has this, you know, pneumonia that is affecting not just their lungs, but their whole body. Um, And when they're, when their heart stops, it's because, of all of these pressures working against it. It's not because of a fluke. It's not because of, you know, uh, in the recent, (laughs) in the recent sports world, it's not because of a, you know, a tackle that hit um, the heart at just the the right time. time. Yeah. Um, So yes, we have miracles in modern medicine. We have ventilators, we have, you know, um, defibrillators, we have all sorts of medicines, but at the end of the day, we're working on the, the body that's in front of us. And if that body is, um, you know, ready to go, if, if that person 
if, if that the body person... is... go ahead oh, i was just gonna try to help you finish the idea um but if the body is physically unable to continue then what what else is there i don't know right. if that's what you're trying to say but... yeah yeah and and almost every patient i've ever talked to when we talk about end of life says that they wouldn't want to be kept alive on machines. That's not a quality of life I think anyone aspires to. Um, And what's hard to explain to patients is that we don't exactly know. We can guess um, with some degree of certainty, but we don't exactly know what it's going to look like at the other end of this resuscitation attempt. You could be, you know, on a ventilator with no quality of life. Um, And you know, all we're doing with resuscitation is getting to a point where we can stop, take a breath and make further decisions. It's not a miracle cure. And it's certainly not something that is pleasant to go through. Um, so that was kind of what I was trying to get at with that article. And it got shared quite a bit. And I actually did some interviews about it. So I think people are definitely interested in this topic and, and want to know more. And it's a, it's a mystery for most people, like it was for me when I was 10 in that bedroom in the middle of the night. Um, you know, unless you've experienced it firsthand, it's no one has experienced death. The closest you can get is seeing someone else go through it. Well, I guess... Uh-huh. There, there are people that have had near-death experiences, but that's a little different. Yeah. Um, I think a, another key piece about CPR and resuscitation in general is just people, like the reflexive answer is, yes, save my life, mm-hmm. which makes sense. But there's very little focus, unless it's prompted in this way, to, to consider that, yeah, if you survive a catastrophic event where you need full life support, that there's going to be weeks, months, and in some cases years, or to just to get back to, you know, 70% of your previous baseline. Yeah, um, and I think that's something that actually we should talk about more and, and patients may be able to grasp uh, in, a, in a more helpful way is what kind of quality of life is acceptable to you? Is 50% of what you have now acceptable? Is anything less than 100 unacceptable? Because I think that is the kind of thinking we need patients to be doing. Not, do I want to be alive or dead? Um, How do I want to be alive? Exactly. What is worse than death? Yeah, I had an attending during my fellowship time that laid out his goals of care discussions in that way. And that's kind of where I picked up on it. And I think everybody's better served to think about quality over quantity when it comes to medical procedures and interventions and everything. I remember Um, a conversation I had with um, a palliative care provider uh, when I was uh, in, in my first hospital position and um, the, the patient was terminally ill. He had fought in world war two and should have been shot down, um, you know, in his fighter plane and died. And so he told me, um, I thought this was beautiful. Every day since then was a gift. Um, and so he was definitely, you know, he was at peace with, with dying. He had raised, you know, children, grandchildren. And I was telling this provider about my conversation with him. And she said, he's what I call a completed person. 
he's done everything that he needed to do. And he's at peace with, you know, that next step, um, which is, you know, passing on and whatever that, you know, whatever that means to you. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I try to live my life that way because we are not promised tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I don't want people to say about me, she really loved writing and was hoping to do it someday when she retired. So, (laughs) um, you know, within reason, we all have responsibilities and things that we have to do that maybe we don't want to do on a day-to-day basis. But I do think there's time for joy and there's time for um, you know, living, living your best life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to time every day if you can to live that little piece of, of quote retired life, but because you don't yeah. even get to that point. Did you ever yeah. have, or have you had any near death experiences where you had that moment of serenity or, you know, total clear mindedness because you're like, Oh shit, this might be it. <laughs> No, I haven't. Um, you know, it, just thinking about it, it, it feels like it feels like something that would be really powerful. And um, I don't want to say I would like to have a near-death experience <laughs> because that sounds terrible. But um, it does sound. Um, you know, like like the conversations you have along the way and, and the epiphanies you have about life and death, um, it, it seems like it would be a really good way to sort of recenter you and ground you. I think COVID did that a little bit for all of us. You know, all of a sudden we weren't too busy to, you know, even think straight. We had a lot of free time on our hands and kind of really got down to the nitty gritty of what's important to us um, in a lot of ways during that time when most of our social and other activities were stripped away from us. Yeah, it definitely seems to provide a, a reprioritization for people that have had those experiences. And mm-hmm. yes, COVID certainly has reoriented many of us into different positions or roles or goals. So, I, I mean, I'm glad that you haven't had one, but I agree. Maybe maybe it would change you. Maybe it would be good, but who knows? Um, and with your writing, do you find that as a way to process like emotions and feelings, particularly around like anxieties and fears, or is it just totally the creative process that you've always felt the urge for? When did you start to write? Um, you know, I think both of those things are true. I've always loved reading and writing. Um, and I usually tell people I may have pursued a career in it if I felt like um, there was a set plan. You go to school for X amount of years, then you get this job, then you get that job. And, you know, um, writing is very nebulous and, um, you know, it's hard to feel successful at it sometimes. So I've really gotten to to the place in my life where I am writing for me. Um, if other people end up reading my stuff, that's wonderful. Um, but yes, it is a lot of processing things. It's, um, my favorite thing that I, that I've learned about writing is when I'm writing a story, I'm, I'm start at the top level. I'm telling a story about this person who does this thing and this happens to them. And this is the end. And as I get into the 
you know, as I get deeper into the characters and get to know them and um, kind of go to these places, my subconscious is weaving in a theme and one day it'll hit me what I'm writing about. Um, I have a script that I wrote about a, a female driven cult um, where the women are sort of forced to make babies and all the men are slaves. And, is that um, the hive? Is that yeah, that's the hive. Okay. So, but, the, but the underlying theme is each of us at some point, if we're honest with ourselves, has to question what you were told as a child and what you believe as an adult based on your experience in the world. And, you know, on day one, if, if you had told me, oh, yeah, you're going to write a story about that and it's going to, you know, I would have been like, that's weird. No, I don't even really have thoughts like that. Um, but I did so much just processing. It was where I was at, at the time in my life, um, what I was thinking about, you know, my childhood and my adulthood. And it just came out in my writing. And I, I just think there's nothing like it. Um, and I love it. And and if if none of my screenplays ever get produced, I'll write till the day I die because of that. Do you think that's why writing can, like, it can be so hard to, to sit down and write sometimes because you just have no idea what's going to come out? It is. The, a lot of times, sometimes I'll just do stream of consciousness writing because you just got to start. Um, and then, you know, and then things things will start to happen. If, if you just force yourself button chair, I'm going to write today. But um I do. I, I think the reason for me it's so hard sometimes to get words down is you want it to be perfect on the first pass. Um, but really, it's all about just getting the thoughts out and you can tweak them later. Um, and I think that's why it's so cathartic, because, you know, if you're if you're truly, you know, present, I think you'll find, you know, little nuggets that you never even knew were back there in the back of your brain. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it is an interesting process. I, I, as you know, I mean, the audience doesn't know, but I write some, I'm not nearly as established as you are at this point, but things just seep out of you and you're like, mm -hmm. why am I writing about that? Like, <laughs> does it really matter why? And the ultimate answer I've come up with so far is no. Yeah. Uh, so that's very cool. You mentioned stream of consciousness sometimes just to get started. It sounds like do you have other habits around writing. Um, I would love to tell you I have this great rhythm. Um, <laughs> I mostly approach it as if I'm not writing, I feel guilty about the fact that I should be writing. So that's not healthy. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do feel like um, you need to have some time where you, you know, I'm going to write for these two hours today, even if I just get three sentences down, I'm not leaving this computer. But you also need time away because so much of writing is taking a shower and thinking about what the birds sound like outside. And, you know, you, you have to take a step away. You have to actually, you have to live life in order to have something to say, by the way. Right. Um, but, you know, so I feel like in a lot of ways, being a writer is, is just being a person, <laughs> you know, like all the things that go into living your day-to-day -day life can can all come back to writing. I don't know who said this, but they basically, the quote is something along the lines of like the difference between someone who's a writer and someone who's not is, is the writing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Like literally yeah. just if you write, you're a writer. Like, and yeah. I think that's helpful to remember on those days that it's really hard to sit down because I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there questioning, why am I doing this? Am I good enough to be doing this? The, those types of like self-doubt and sabotage thoughts. But it's like, no, just if you write, you're a writer. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think once you have the bug, like if you told yourself, Matt, like if you were like, practically, this isn't going to go anywhere. I, I'm going to stop this. I think you'd probably not be able to stop. <laughs> That's been my experience. You mean stop writing? Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. I, on my, in my experience, like when I have some type of rhythm or flow or something that I'm working on, I, just getting it out there, just doing it at all makes me feel so much more complete and more balanced mm -hmm. as a person. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and like you, I feel like, I don't know, like medicine and writing are so different in terms of career paths and the fortunate path of medicine in a way, it's also a burden at the same time, is that it's so structured and there is a stepwise path to having a way to make a living and mm -hmm. always have your basic needs. Whereas writing, there is no, there is no roadmap. It's yeah. all. I mean, even established screenwriters are one project away from being <laughs> homeless, you know, like they're always hustling. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a different, different lifestyle. Totally different. I will, I was going to touch base with you about, um, you had written a couple of pieces about the opioid e epidemic and lo and behold, I don't know if you realize it's been like six or seven years since that time. Yeah. And if you have any thoughts that have evolved since then around opioids. Um, you know, I think just off the cuff, um, this is going to sound crazy. I have a sense of hope about it. I know there's a lot of badness happening, um, but I feel like at least in the medical community, and this is coming from somebody who doesn't, you know, see chronic pain patients exclusively, but I do feel like um, the way that it's been handled and the, the structure that it's been given and, you know, like, I think it has helped set patient expectations and kept the doctors away from being the bad guy all the time um, saying no, because we've known, we knew when I was in residency, we knew, you know, X number of patients get addicted to, you know, opioids just because of their DNA. And you try to not give them unless you absolutely have to, um, you know, especially in the outpatient setting we've known that for a long time, but putting that into practice is an entirely different story. Um, but I, so I think some of the regulations, as much as we all hate to be regulated, have helped kind of take the onus off of us a little bit, helped patients understand this is real. This is not something we're making up because we don't, because we want to withhold, you know, medicine that's going to make you feel better. Um, so I, I guess, I guess that's my feeling is at least in the, in the medical community, I think it's patients are starting to understand that these medicines are not the end all be all. Um, I don't know. What do you think? 
I, I agree with what you just said. It's, I think the regulation from, it's primarily state to state from my understanding. And I think federal regulation is more about kind of punishing the pharmaceutical companies that misled everybody. But the state to state regulation of who can prescribe what for how long, I think is very impactful in a positive way because these drugs are not without harm. And to quote another attending, uh, neurology attending from residency, he said, if it's strong enough to help you, it's also strong enough to hurt you. And I don't, I don't think there's a better drug to point to than opiates for that mm -hmm. example. Um, I think as physicians, it's much easier to be responsible prescribers when the state legislation and rules around prescribing are so yes. public are so public. So then yes, physicians aren't going to be blamed or bullied or manipulated into prescribing things that are medically not indicated because the public is so aware of what the legal implications are of those things. And yeah. I, I can't think of any other example where the public knowledge of medical legal intersection is so helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And like I said, I mean, physicians are the worst. We hate being regulated. <laughs> but in this case, it's almost like when you're a kid and you kind of don't want to do something that all your friends are doing and your parents come in and be the bad guy. And they're like, no, you're not allowed to do that. And you're like, Phew. okay, my parents said I couldn't do that. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. how it feels. Yeah, like someone's trying to get you to climb a tree or something. You're like, oh, I'm not allowed yeah. to. It's much easier to just say, like, no, I'm not allowed to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Did, did did becoming a parent change your views on mortality? Um. Yeah, I will say. Um, you know, there was a time before children. Um, you know, I had seen a lot of death and I would just cavalierly say, you know, I, I could never live like that. Um, there's a lot I would go through if, if you told me I had stage four breast cancer and I needed to take chemotherapy and I would get six more months. Um, I would torture myself for that six months with my kids. That's the difference. Um, mm. It's not about me in that moment. Um, it's about, gosh, I mean, that's six more months of memories for them. Um, at the same time, I don't want to see them see, I don't want them to see me tortured. You yeah, know, and have say, what if, what if those, yeah, what if those memories are more no. trauma than they are? No, so obviously not, um, not that, but, but, there, you know, I guess, I guess I got this from my parents, but there's a lot of things you can protect your kids from seeing. So, um, but, but that, that has changed. There are things I would put myself through now, um, if I thought it was, it was going to benefit my kids that I wouldn't put myself through. Um, it was just me. That's a pretty cool insight to share. Thanks. And everything, you know, you think about things in a certain, about saying things in a certain way, um, but when a conversation just naturally happens, you say it differently. But I think we kind of, in a roundabout way, touched on everything I had been sort of thinking over this week. I guess the last thing I'll 
try to just probe one more time is, do you think your writing and medicine are related? And do you think you'd be as good at one versus the other without? Um, so I'm going to get very hokey and say, I think everything happens for a reason. <laughs> okay. um, there are days when I think, what, what would my, you know, writing career be like if I had just pursued that out of the gate? And I do think, it, I think I couldn't have one without the other. I don't think I ever would have appreciated writing um, if it had been my, you know, job from the get-go. Um, and I, I do think I have become a much more understanding and insightful person because of my time in medicine. Um, this is something I actually tell people all the time, like practicing medicine is such an, such a privilege because, you know, generally speaking, we don't tend to mingle outside of people that are similar to us. Um, you know, just growing up and, you know, the people in your neighborhood and the people that you're friends with and the people that you go to school with. And medicine allows you to have pretty personal experiences with the whole spectrum, the whole gambit. And I feel like, um, you know, I've been practicing, let's see, out of training for, you know, over 10 years now. And, you know, I, I just feel like I have such an understanding of the human condition and I've had experiences that no one else, you know, many other people, you know, just don't experience like, you know, being with a, a stranger as they pass away and comforting their family, you know? So I think the experience going back to what I said before about how you have to live your life to have something to write about. Um, I don't know that I'll ever, I have written about medicine. Um, I don't feel this urge to write about medicine anymore. Um, I, I don't think that's my calling, but I do think there's no way to separate me as the physician from me as the writer. Um, bringing in all that experience into, into what's getting on the page. So that's a very long way of saying, um, I do think, I think they both help each other. <laughs> yeah no that makes sense and it wasn't it wasn't as long as you think it was it was, it was <laughs> well said and um i've heard other people say that too like you can't write you can't have anything to say unless you've been places if you've done things if you've talked to other yeah. people and truly you can go from taking care of like a senator and then the next day you're taking care of someone who might be homeless for the last 10 years and everybody yeah. in between so you're exposed to all sorts of different environments just by being with different people which is truly a a rare experience and, and a career yeah anything you want to plug for listeners to go find like your blog or upcoming anything projects um you know i I guess it, you know, I try to keep my website updated. Um, it's www.kvscruggs. So that's K, Z as in Victor, Scruggs as in Earl Scruggs, the banjo player, dot com. Um, I haven't updated it recently, but I'll probably, I'll probably be 
going back in there and, and fixing some things up. But that's where I keep, um, that's where my blog lives. And that's where I keep all the information about my writing. Um, it's not really anything to do with my medical professional life. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't have anything active that, um, that I'm doing creatively at this moment that you'd be able to um, access. But, you know, hopefully someday I'll have a movie out there. Yeah, I hope so. Let's keep our <laughs> fingers crossed. We believe in you. Thanks. All right, Krista. Well, thanks for joining us today. And as a reminder, the contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation.